Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, more than midway through 2021, we'll recap Georgia and its efforts to vaccinate more folks. Plus, we'll meet an Atlanta-based couple and hear their concept for affordable and sustainable housing. Here's a hint. Shipping containers. Those conversations and more on today's program in just a moment. But first, this, the weather. Tropical Depression Danny appears to be weakening. That's according to the National Hurricane Center. Now, Danny came in late Monday near the Georgia-South Carolina border. Heavy rains are expected to continue across Georgia and South Carolina into tonight. And you know, Georgia, some scattered rain showers and a few thunderstorms might pop up this evening. That could mostly occur in areas of north and west Georgia today. In other news, state lawmakers heard from the public Monday evening during the first of an in-person public hearings regarding redrawing the state's election districts. The General Assembly must redraw the districts every 10 years to balance population changes. For several hours, and I do mean several, lawmakers heard from citizens on the subject. Mark Bogard, who identified as a longtime resident of Gwinnett County, told the committee he'd like to see parts of other counties grouped with Gwinnett. The bottom line is, is I, I would just love to see y'all uh, maybe take some of, you know, Walton County or, you know, more of Newnan, something where we kind of get a bigger slice of the pie. I mean, I realize Gwinnett County is pretty big, but as it is, we sort of feel as if, at least I do, I feel very disenfranchised, you know, by the fact that I got severed off the rest of Gwinnett County. I was 7th District at one time, so. Hmm. Ayanna Dennis told the committee she would like to, she would like the committee to be more transparent and include plenty of options for input. And we also need language access and ASL interpretation. No Georgian should be left out of this process. There also needs to be multiple in-person and virtual hearings across the state that actually fits in with days and time frames that most Georgians can come and testify. I am a working mother. I have to go pick my daughter up from daycare. Other people do not have the privilege that I have to be standing here today. That's not fair. Now, lawmakers are holding nearly a dozen other meetings all over state this summer, and you can find out more on our website where those public hearings will be taking place. Finally, a win tonight for the Atlanta Hawks evens their NBA Eastern Conference Championship Series with the Milwaukee Bucks. However, that win may depend on the foot of point guard Trey Young, who has a bruised bone. A loss in tonight's game at State Farm Arena could be the last time the home crowd gets to cheer for the Hawks this season. Although some teams have come back from being down three games to one, we shall see. Believe. I believe that's what everyone is saying. Believe. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. 
Last week, Governor Brian Kemp issued the final executive order extending the public health state of emergency, which will now expire this Thursday, July 1st at 12 a.m. Now, we should note the governor could issue new guidelines as it relates to the COVID-19 pandemic. In fact, according to Kemp's office, this week a new executive order could include the suspension of various state rules and regulations. Meanwhile, the nation won't reach President Joe Biden's 70% of American adults with at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine by July 4th. Right now, according to the State Department of Public Health, about 38% of the population in this state is considered fully vaccinated. There's a lot of related news to get to, so back again with the latest on COVID-19 in Georgia, our WABE health reporter and host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands, Sam Whitehead. Sam, welcome back. Hey, Rose. Good to be with you, as always. Wow. We're more than midway through 2021, Sam. So if you could, if you want to recap Georgia's vaccination rollout, let's start with the successes. Uh, How did Georgia do? I mean, I think it's important to look at where the numbers are now, right? So checking the latest figures from the State Department of Public Health, about 43% of Georgians have received at least one dose of the vaccine. They've gotten the process started. Compare that 43% to 54% nationally. If we want to think about people who are fully vaccinated, so that's they've completed a full vaccine regimen, either the two-dose regimens or the one-dose regimen, Mm -hmm. 38% of Georgians have done that compared with 46% nationally. So looking at where we are as we approach July 4th and this uh, goal, really, that the Biden administration set to have 70 percent of all adults with at least one shot, you know, Georgia's lagging the nation and and Georgia's lagging a bunch of other states, really. You know, we've we've seen certain parts of the country. um, I'm thinking of states in the Northeast whose vaccination rates for both one shot and fully vaccinated are just very far ahead of, of Georgia's. And if we want to think about kind of the pace over the course of the pandemic, uh, Georgia's kind of trailed many other states mm-hmm. over the course of the vaccine rollout. So it's not a real surprise uh, to kind of see where we are now. So and if we're talking about challenges, uh, are we still focusing on rural and some other specific communi- communities that are still lagging behind in, in getting vaccinated here? I mean, I think uh, yes and yes. But, but I think what what's important to keep in mind is that at this point, Um, We've really moved away from the days of the big mass vaccination site where, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people will drive or walk in each day to get a shot. The the real effort has moved. uh, You know, it's gotten a lot smaller. It's gotten a lot more targeted. And and kind of what's happened along with that is, is we've seen... Um, kind of less of a big push from the state of Georgia, like a big centralized push. You know, we, we've seen local health uh, departments do things like mobile buses where they go to churches or community centers. We, we, we've also seen some nonprofits move into that space. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was just at a, a vaccination site last week at Marta's Laredo Bus Garage mm-hmm. where they were trying to get employees vaccinated. And, you know, from conversations that I've had with federal health officials, you know, specifically the director of the Centers for Disease Control and prevention, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, you know, she says it's important to, you know, think of each additional shot and each additional arm as as a win. We're not going to see the kind of large volumes of vaccines administered from this point forward. But, you know, each person who gets vaccinated is is one more little brick in this protection wall that we're building. And we should note, I believe, Fulton and DeKalb County are still pushing for their for folks to get vaccinated just the other day uh, there's a new South Fulton vaccina- vaccination site that's going to open um, actually today as a matter of fact so those counties I believe Fulton and DeKalb have always been in that top five of the counties in the state in terms of not only just COVID cases but also in, in leading sadly in, in some areas of, of hospitalizations and deaths. Yeah and you know it, I, I think though um, I've even seen that DeKalb is also shifting their focus, going more towards smaller, more targeted Mm -hmm. vaccination sites. Um, They got some CARES Act money. This is the big coronavirus relief package uh, passed by Congress earlier this year uh, to support a mobile vaccination unit. So certainly while health departments are still you know, offering shots to people who can come to them. I think there's also an understanding that there is still a lot of work to be done to 
reach people where they are. And Sam, I know it may be difficult to get this data, but what do we know about the 12 to 16 year olds? Since most of those, that population will probably go to their pediatricians or their parents. Uh, they have a, obviously a, a family physician. Do we have much data on, on that number? So um, that's a great question. The State Department of Public Health, which has been publishing vaccination data for a while now, does break it down by different age groups, um, but they don't actually go down as low as 12 years of age. So mm -hmm. the smallest kind of age uh, breakdown they have is 15 to 19 year olds. And we do see from their data uh, that we do see fewer people in that age group who have been vaccinated. Now, looking at federal data from, from the CDC, they do actually list, you know, the percentage of the total U.S. population over the age of 12 um, that has gotten vaccinated. And they say, you know, 63 percent of everyone over 12. So that's inclusive of that 12 to 15 mm -hmm. age group, but then it's everyone else um, has, has gotten a shot. So, you know, I think this uh, is indicative of something we've seen over the course of the pandemic. It's that it's gathering this data and getting down to this kind of granular level of analysis is a job in and of itself. And I think it's important to keep in mind that public health agencies are under-resourced and their focus right now is, um, you know, getting shots in arms, not necessarily. Uh, and, and I think that's come at the expense, as we've seen over the course of the pandemic, uh, of having really good data. And speaking of really good data, and the, we need to be fair because the Department of Health came under fire initially with their COVID dashboard, which some had questioned, but it's still updated regularly, correct? It is. Um, I actually, it's been a few, uh, uh, it's actually been a minute since I've checked the dashboard myself because cases are, are so low right now, um, but it is still being updated regularly. Um, and, you know, I'm really curious to see the way that assets like these are maintained as we move into the mm -hmm. future. Um, you know, pre-pandemic, if you wanted to get an update from the Department of Public Health on, say, flu season, um, they would put out a weekly report. A lot of that data was stuff that came directly from the CDC with, with a few state numbers. Um, but it was no way, shape, or form um, the kind of lift that maintaining a interactive dashboard um, is. And that's something they've been doing for the pandemic. And so, you know, I'm curious to see the point at which um, the State Department of Public Health changes how they present this data. Um, because I can't imagine at some point in time we will see a, a, a significant change to how they share this. And Again, we know that early on, before there was a vaccine, obviously getting those regular updates about testing. Is testing still a priority now in this state? You know, I, I would say it's 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 hard to say whether or not it's a priority. I have talked recently with folks at the Department of Public Health, and they tell me that testing numbers are just down generally. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think we're at a point in this pandemic rose where, um, you know, for people who are fully vaccinated, they're probably not thinking about testing anymore. Um, you know, I did do a quick check of the Department of Public Health's website. All of their uh, offices they have in counties all over the state are still offering testing. You know, you can still get tested at private pharmacies and mm -hmm. hospitals and, and, and things like that. So, you know, it's not like this is a resource that's gone away. But what I would imagine has happened is that the public focus Mm -hmm. on testing. Um, the, the kind of high demand that we saw, especially last summer, for testing is, has certainly fallen. Well, and obviously with the focus on vaccines. Well, and speaking of vaccines, uh, let's talk about what the Department of Public Health and what you know in terms of what they're communicating about this now, the Delta variant, which, you know, we've heard Dr. Fauci say now, this will be the dominant virus here in this nation. What is the Department of uh, Georgia Department of Health saying about all this? Yeah, so I reached out to them last week just to get an update on where uh, we were in the state with the Delta variant. And the first thing they pointed out was something we were just speaking about. Uh, testing is down significantly is, is what they tell me. Um, and so um, if you consider that they're getting few few fewer test results and only a small percentage of those are sequenced, tested mm -hmm. to see which kind of variant we're, we're dealing with. Um, they say our numbers are likely undercounted when we think about how many cases linked to the mm -hmm. Delta variant we have here in the state. Last week, um, that number was fewer than 30, right? Fewer than 30 in the state, but DPH acknowledges that's an undercount. Yeah. What I think is interesting is um, when I reached out to ask about the Delta variant, they informed me of where we were with the Alpha variant. So this was the one first found uh, widely circulating in the UK. Mm -hmm. And people might remember earlier on in the year, um, this was not the most widely circulating variant in the country or in the state. Um, but as of last week, um, the Alpha variant accounted for almost 80% of Georgia cases. 
So in the span of just a few months, we had the you know wild type we can call it, you know the OG coronavirus. <laughs> Look at Sam White here, um, using OG. You've been hanging out with me too much, Sam. Um, that that had been replaced by the alpha variant, and so you know public health officials at the federal level have really warned that it really is potentially only a matter of time before we see that same kind of explosion of the Delta variant here. If you just join us, I'm joined by Sam Whitehead. He is our WABE health reporter and, of course, host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands? Sam, that being what you just said, then one might say, well, then shouldn't the Department of Health uh, really then push really push for folks to get tested and to also possibly get the vaccine because of what we're hearing with this Delta variant? I, I think should is a weighty word, right? Um, you know, for, for me, I, I think about a few things. There are uh, messengers that, you know, polling has shown people trust about vaccination more mm-hmm. than others. You know, great polling from the folks at the Kaiser Family Foundation has found that generally the public doesn't want to hear politicians tell them to do something about their health. Uh, you know, people who are maybe on the fence, they're in, in, you know, the group who wants to wait and see what happens before mm-hmm. they get vaccinated. This polling has shown that it's beneficial for them to have conversations with their health care providers. Okay. Now, for those that have a health care provider. Sure, exactly, which is a big, important caveat. Now, that polling has also shown that, you know, public health agencies like the CDC are also trusted messengers. And, you know, I know the Department of Public Health um, at the state level, and I know that, you know, local Public health agencies, even some local governments. Uh, For example, the you know uh, county commission in Gwinnett County is funding a Mm -hmm. vaccine confidence campaign. Um, So you know there there are efforts um, at the state and and local level. Even though we haven't seen things in Georgia like we maybe saw in other states, you know the Vaximillion campaign in Ohio, Mm -hmm. for example. You know we haven't seen a a push like that here. So you're saying we need a a lottery where get a get a vaccine and get an entry for a million dollars. (laughs) <laughs> there, I've I've even seen some early reporting recently questioning the effectiveness of those campaigns. Truly, that that, that you know, it's and I think I think the verdict is out on, on you know th- things like that get a lot of publicity. Yeah, and I think the verdict is out on really whether or not they move the needle. Um, for someone who is, you know, very firmly um, resistant to getting vaccinated, you know, that's that's a, those are hard barriers to overcome. Yeah. Well, they've tried everything from free tacos to free tequila shots, which I'm not sure you want a tequila shot after getting vaccinated. But, hey, do you. Uh, but let's talk about this Delta variant, uh, Sam. And I know you're not a doctor. You don't play one on television. But what are you hearing about the about this Delta variant and, and, its, and the symptoms? Are they more severe? Well, I, the verdict is still out on that, too. I mean, I think it's still important. It's important to remember with, with all of these new variants that it does take time for, you know, the you know, uh, good research to be done. Um, what the CDC says about this variant at this point is that it does appear to be more transmissible, mm-hmm. which we've seen with other variants to the kind of wild type coronavirus. And it's important to know that increased transmissibility does mean the potential for more cases and you get more cases, you get more severe disease, you get potentially more deaths. Um, there has been some early reporting um, from the New York Times about this variant um, causing potentially different kinds of symptoms. Um, hmm. There were some small studies in China uh, that pointed to that. And and the CDC does say that even though the vaccines that we have are, are widely protective against the different variants, that there does appear to be some potential for um, reduced effectiveness against the Delta variant with the vaccines available here in the U.S. Which is Pfizer, uh, Johnson & Johnson, and Moderna for mm-hmm. right now. Um, let's switch, because as it relates to what Mike Governor Kemp's anticipated modified or into the public health state of emergency set to expire this Thursday at 12 a.m. What are his options here, Sam? Well, I think it's important to remember what this public health state of emergency did. It it kind of sent this signal like, hey, this is an emergency. Um, And I think that 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 signaling is very important. But it also did a bunch of things that helped, you know, for instance, the healthcare sector respond to the pandemic. Um, It made it easier for certain people to give vaccines. It lowered the bar for, you know, certain regulations on where healthcare facilities could open or even who could practice here in the state. And so it is yet to be seen which of those kinds of provisions the governor is going to carry forward. Um, We do expect an additional executive order from his office later this week. Um, And I wouldn't be surprised uh, to see some of those provisions um, included because, you know, we still have 
hospitals who I think are probably concerned about seeing flare-ups in cases. Mm -hmm. You know, the governor said a few weeks ago the state is already having conversations, his office is already having conversations about, you know, how to deal with schools going back later this year, workplaces returning potentially in person later on this year. So, you know, I think there even is an awareness um, from the governor's office that we're not potentially out of the woods here totally, even though Mm -hmm. it seems unlikely we'll see as big a spike as we did um, early this year. So we shall wait and see what happens on July 1st. Um, finally, Sam, some podcast news regarding <laughs> did you wash your hands? You know I had to bring that in there. Yeah. So um, thank you. Uh, so after we've, I think, been releasing two episodes a week for probably about a year now, and that was actually down from five, I think, at the start of the pandemic. Um, but next week, because we are going to pass this big uh, milestone set out by President Biden, mm-hmm. um, as of uh, this week, this will be our last week where we do two episodes uh, two releases a week. Starting next week, we're going to go to Thursdays. Um, that doesn't mean we're going away. There's certainly lots more stories we can tell about COVID and any other mm-hmm. kinds of health issues here in the state. Um, but, you know, the, the the pace of news is changing. And I think that we're, we're just trying to try to keep listeners informed while understanding that um, this is maybe not uh, the, the top issue for everyone the way it was a year ago. Speaking of listeners, I just have an email from a listener who wants to know, ask Sam when who determines when the pandemic is no longer a pandemic? I think I know the answer to that. Is it the World Health Organization? I think it is the World Health Organization. That's a great question. Um, they have been the ones over the course of this whole situation who have, you know, uh, kind of uh, classified this, mm-hmm. right? Um, so yeah, that's that's where I'll be looking to uh, to get the signal that it is not officially a pandemic anymore. Well, even before we came on air, you heard in the NPR newscast the issues they're having now in Russia. Obviously, we know about the continent of Africa and trying mm-hmm. to get just these nations getting them access to the vaccine. So it could be it could be a year, it could be years before they officially declare the pandemic, the coronavirus pandemic over. I mean, I've, I've had conversations with folks where if we want to think about this as an outbreak that's still causing trouble in parts of the world, um, talk about 2023. And will you change, did you wash your hands to, are you still washing your hands? <laughs> I'm just glad that that is the public health message that everyone has stuck with. <laughs> It's been consistent over the course of the pandemic. We, you know, uh, other recommendations have come and gone, but washing your hands is still tried and true. I remember the controversy over what should we call this podcast? I don't know if it was a controversy. Well, I think I was causing controversy. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I don't know if I like that. Uh, Also, congratulations on being nominated for a Georgia Association of Broadcasters Award, Sam. Thank you, Russ. (laughs) WAB Health reporter and host of the podcast that Rose Scott did not initially like the title of Did You Wash Your Hands? I can admit that I was wrong, I guess, Sam. I mean, I've gotten that from from listeners, too, who have (laughs) suggested we change it. It didn't grab me at first, you know? Well, when all the branding has been set, that's a lot of work. People worked really hard on our logo and stuff. We're not going to change that. Our chief content officer, Scott, will enjoy me saying that, telling everyone that, hey, I ain't like the name of that podcast. Sam, thanks so much. I appreciate it as always. Thanks, Rose. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Here's how the National Association of City Transportation Officials define what our next segment is all about. Parklets are public seating platforms that convert curbside parking spaces into vibrant community spaces. That's it. And the concept was even talked about in a 2018 TEDx talk from Reno, Nevada. It was from a small business owner named Nellie Davis. Parklets are just a two-parking space change that a community can make to revitalize the entire streetscape and take ownership of an area. Not only have they proven to increase foot traffic and encourage social interaction, but they put life back into concrete. And it's the absence of this type of vibrancy that allows blight to set in. Hmm. Life back in the concrete. Joining me now from the city of Atlanta is Tim Keene, Commissioner of Planning and Community Development, and Vanessa Lira, Assistant Director in the Office of Design. Welcome to the program, both of you. I really appreciate it. Listen, I gave a brief definition of parklets. Uh, Commissioner Keene, I'll start with you. Can you give a more detailed design description of a parklet? 
Well, the introduction you provided was excellent. Um, That's simple, huh? It's what we were, we're doing here in Atlanta. The one thing I'd say, though, Rose, is that, and it's important to focus on the the very specific changes that happen on the street when, mm-hmm. you, when you create a space like this. But I want to make one broader comment, which is the work that we're doing with small business owners in Atlanta to use parking spaces for seating and for people to sit and whether they're eating or not um, is really just, it's part of what we must do in Atlanta. You know, like our big challenge as a city is to make walking and and riding bikes and use of transit Mm -hmm. more pleasant for people in the city because we've designed a city so far almost entirely based on driving and we have to shift completely to a city that is designed for walking and, and cycling and getting to transit and this is it's details like this that really matter this is the difference between success and failure when it comes to this making places like this in the city all right well let me bring in vanessa lear assistant director in the office of design because i'm curious when we talk about these parklets can the designs vary i've seen some drawings where they're real nice they have nice uh, tables and benches and that might even be covered and there's some you know plants along the way so the design can vary is that am i am i explaining that correctly yeah, that's correct. The design can certainly vary and the price point can certainly vary as well. And so um, you've seen probably in places like San Francisco where they've spent um, a lot of time creating very unique ones um, that are specific to that location, that have different seating types. And so uh, our focus here was to get as many on the ground as we could as fast as possible because of the pandemic. And so the approach was slightly different, but they're certainly in a more permanent condition. You can get as creative as you'd like. Well, let me ask you all this. Neither one of you can tackle this first. Is there a specific type of street infrastructure wise that these parklets may work best if where they're located? I mean, what's an idea street? I'm imagining, are we talking about a, a one way street? And also, you all know parking in the city of Atlanta. And so when folks hear you, what you're going to take parking spaces so for our listeners who, you know, are maybe giving y'all a little side eye right now because of that, what is the idea street infrastructure-wise for a parklet? You want to speak to that, Vanessa? Sure, yeah. Obviously, the first thing that needs to happen is there needs to be an existing parking space there in order for it to be converted. So that's our first layer of eligibility. Um, but really, we found that they work best when it's in a location that has a little bit of foot traffic already, mm-hmm. whether it's because there's a restaurant there or there, it, it could be um, all sorts of different reasons why someone would want to stop at that particular location. So there being a reason for someone to want to rest at that spot is really helpful for it to be um, vibrant and successful. And we've also found that if you pair it with a community organization or with a business that's adjacent to it, that's going to be taking care of it, that also really um, um, helps. And as far as the infrastructure, really, it's just making sure that the parking space is there and that it's in an area um, where people are going to be walking by it. Are they mobile? Can they be moved with ease? There certainly are ones that can be moved with ease. The ones that we have right now, which are our are, are temporary version, they can be moved easily. Um, the barriers are water filled. So once you drain the water, they're really light. Once you fill up with water, it can't be moved as easily. Um, and so that's certainly something, if it doesn't work in a particular location, we can always try it out in a different place. And that we have done that in the past. And where are some of these parklets located right now within the city of Atlanta? We have them in a lot of different neighborhoods, Home Park, Sweet Auburn, Kirkwood, Cascade Heights, Summer Hill, Midtown, Virginia Highland, Downtown, Cabbage Town, really all over. Um, there's one in Grant Park. We have them in several different locations. Commissioner King, you mentioned that these parklets should be viewed to be beneficial in terms of transit and mobility mobility enhancements. But here's a question, too, in terms of the, the, the cost for this. Would the city pay for these parklets or if a business wanted one or a business district wanted some parklets, who picks up the tab for this? And how much are we talking about per parklet? Well, this particular program is one that this, that we are paying for. We, we generate revenue through an agreement with MARTA that we, uh, that we generate through advertisements that are on the bus shelters in the city. So we have a 
way of funding this particular program that is from a very specific piece of revenue that we generate in partnership with MARTA. And the total that we'll, we've invested so far in this, in all of these locations, the total amount is $100,000. We're gonna invest more though. The, the locations that we have out there now are, the, as Vanessa said, wanted to get them out there quickly, so they're fairly simple. But we will invest more in these so that they become uh, more intricate and, and thoughtfully designed. So there'll be more investment in them. But the partnership with MARTA and the revenue that we're investing in this is, is we think, very appropriate. Because as I said, when you, if you're going to expect a vibrant street, which is needed in order for more people to walk and ride their bike and use transit for transportation, then this is what helps with that. You know, it is it's these kinds of investments that make a street a place people want to be. And so it seems like a small, a very small amount to invest in this big issue we have around transportation in Atlanta. Given with folks wanting obviously more bike lanes, obviously we have folks on scooters, uh, we have the bus, obviously MARTA operating. And Commissioner King, you and I have had this conversation before about Atlanta streets and the infrastructure. How do you respond, and either you or Director Lyric can answer this, how do you respond to someone who says, how can you ensure that there won't be, one, some overcrowdedness or just plain clutter? And will you also have bike racks available? Because if you want to increase more foot traffic or folks riding their bikes and they want to stop at a parklet, Will there be a bike rack or, or something similar? Would each parklet be designed to maybe house uh, one or two bikes as well? And then also, what about for folks with um, with with disabilities here? Yeah, I can touch on on those things. And so, uh, speaking to the bikes, that's definitely feedback that we've gotten from both from the survey that we have out as well as from business owners. And so, that's something that we are looking into um, for the future. When it comes to accessibility, the temporary version, we have a ramp that gets you down to um, to road level. But one of the upgrades that we're gonna be bringing in this summer is a deck that's going to make the parklet flush with the sidewalk. So there will mm -hmm. not be an accessibility issue. It will be at the same level. Um, that was something that just takes a little bit longer because they are made to order. And so that wasn't something that we were able to provide within a couple of months, but that's that's what we're working on for an upgrade for the summer. And then your third question about the maintenance, that's something that you've we've learned. It really is important to partner with a mm -hmm. business or an organization that's going to be there day to day maintaining and making sure that it's being well utilized. And that's been very successful when we have done it that way. So in a sense, this is a trial run for Parklets. And how would you all evaluate the success, the effectiveness of it? Will you wait to hear feedback from the community, from business owners? How will you assess this? Well, we have both a survey out, like I mentioned, that um, is out on the parklet. So if you're using the parklet, you can answer the survey. We've also been speaking with business owners. And this is the second round of parklets that we're doing. We did do an, a different parklet a few years ago. So we have already learned significantly from that. Um, and we are, you know, thinking through what type of upgrades we might want to do based on that, that feedback that we've received. Um, and I think it's also a trial run in terms of not just the success of the park in terms of how people want them, but just also in terms of if this is good for our streets, which we really believe that it is. And so we're working with HLDOT, which is a transportation department, very closely on that. Um, with our team that works with the, the local businesses as well. So there's a team of people that's really making sure that these are going to be successful and, and hopefully be able to uh, be on the ground beyond the pandemic. That's a feedback, feedback that we've heard over and over again is that people want these to be more permanent. They want them to be long lasting beyond just this uh, emergency situation that we have currently. And the great thing about Atlanta is that we don't necessarily go through all four seasons, but as we wrap up with these parklets, be able to withstand, uh, you know, Georgia can have some, Atlanta can have some great weather and we can have some not so nice weather. Yes, they will be able to definitely um, withstand the, the weather. We've had similar situations, um, both with the parklet that we've done in Grant Park, that was before this round, as well as with 
the boardwalk that we have uh, downtown that are on the ground year round. Um, there are certain cities that do have to remove them during winter, but mm-hmm. we don't believe that that will be the case with our weather conditions. And I have a, a email from a listener who wants to know, will these parklets, they won't disturb the bus booths and, and, the, and the bus stops where folks can sit down, will it? No, that is one of the eligibility requirements. It has to be 100 feet away from, from a bus stop, so we'll certainly not preclude that. Tim, Commissioner Tim Keene, I'll give you the last word. You are always talking about how to improve Atlanta's transit and mobility enhancement. As we wrap up and say goodbye, you see Parkless being very instrumental in that. I think it's an important element of, of, of many elements that, that we have to employ in Atlanta. To your earlier point, Rose, about the city becoming more congested, we all live in a very fast-growing region, and we have a fast-growing city. And We all need to get into the mindset of congestion is going to need to be part of our lives and how do we enhance the street life of the city as we grow and become more congested. And this is part of that. All right. Tim Keene, Commissioner of Planning and Community Development and Vanessa Lira, Assistant Director in the Office of Design. Thank you both for taking time. I really appreciate it. Good information about Parklets. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. If you're following Atlanta's average medium home price, it's been fluctuating between $395,000, hold on to your hair, $405,000. Now, according to Redfin, in May of this year, Atlanta home prices were up 24.6% compared to last year, selling for a medium price of, yes, $405,000. If you got it, I'm happy for you. On average, homes in Atlanta sell after 19 days on the market compared to 41 days last year. There were 1,792 homes sold in May this year. That was up from 1,030 last year, which ponders this question. Where's the affordable housing? And depending on whom you ask and where they live, you'll get a lot of different answers. And I know because you all, the listener, you've heard a lot of different answers. And from over the years, we've spoken to so many folks about housing affordability. What's happening in the city, many of the communities that have really stuck through the hard times and now the redevelopment's coming. People are getting pushed out and they are not there to reap the benefits when they've lived in a food desert or when their schools have been failing. Those people deserve to reap in the benefits of what the city is, is becoming. It really is a ticking time bomb for our region and many people have turned away from it because it's not an easy answer. We've lost about 5,000 affordable housing units in Atlanta uh, over the past couple years. Um, so, so rents are getting higher. I'm concerned about what neighborhoods and what the city looks like 20 years from now. Do we have a Beltline that is just for the affluent? Do we have a city that's just for the affluent? I think one of my initial evaluations is that we may have lost sight of people a little bit. There's 10,000 seniors that enter the market every day, but there's not 10,000 units being built for them to live in. This is a crisis stage right now. We're not approaching a crisis stage. We're already in it. I would assume I am the target demographic. I am a young millennial. I really just don't know who the people are that are affording these places. If you look up on the horizon, the change that coming is a tsunami. (laughs) And if we don't match that shifting the way that we see the world, we know we're not going to be able to live here. Wow, that clip is nearly four years old when we started talking about affordable housing. Yes, and so much of it still applies, right? But there is consensus about one aspect of affordable housing. There's no one solution. Well, Elise and Majesty Gale are the founders of Evo Holdings, and they join me now to talk about their work in creating sustainable and affordable homes throughout Metro Atlanta. Elise and Majesty, welcome to the program. I really appreciate it. 
Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you so much. So, Lisa, I was watching your expression when I told you that clip was nearly four years old. Everything that those folks talked about right here on this program still applies today. Your thoughts on defining affordable housing? Well, like you said, that clip was from four years ago, and it's just um, startling to see what has happened since, I guess you could say, since the pandemic as far as housing affordability. And um, when we talk affordability, we also have to talk about availability as well, um, because the resources just aren't there at this time. And I don't believe they were there four years ago either. And so um, with everything that has happened, there's been an increasingly um, just large amount of need in that space. So it's, it's a big problem. It's a global problem. Match, let me ask you this, because you all are in this space, you've worked in this area. How long will this demand, which is high and inventory so low, it continues to be a seller's market? How long might this trend continue and how concerning is it for you? This is a huge concern because honestly, all uh, numbers, all data leads to this continuing on for some time. And when I say some time, we're talking five to 10 years uh, without some type of extreme action coming from, uh, you know, the public, the public side of things. So it's very concerning if, like you said, that clip is from four years ago, and we've been doing this for a while as far as the affordable housing space, and it's only gotten more, um, I'd say, exclusive. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so I just see, you know, housing becoming a true luxury as opposed to a right. So let me, and I can stay with you, Matchy, and then uh, Elise, you can jump in there. So how long has the, is it Evo Group Holdings been around? Yes, yes. Well, we've been around, or we've been in real estate for about eight years now total. Um, we got into affordable housing very seriously with the focus on affordable housing about four years ago. Mm -hmm. So this was right, uh, you know, before the pandemic, um, we were already advocating and kind of saying the same exact things that the clip was saying. Um, after the pandemic hit, we just saw needs skyrocket to the point that we realized there's not one organization in Atlanta or any, any specific city that can deal with this magnitude of an issue. It has to come from public-private partnership, and that is when we established a nonprofit and started going that route. And so, at least when we are at the intersection of housing as it relates to affordability and sustainability, and you all know, you've heard people say, well, sustainability costs more, but you're shaking your head. You're saying it doesn't necessarily have to when you talk about affordable housing, correct? Well, that's um, an interesting point that you bring up, the intersection between sustainability and affordability, because you just definitely want to make sure that people are living in the best conditions possible um, for, I guess, what, what one would consider the most economical mm -hmm. um, pricing as well. But that's where it gets a little bit tricky because when you think about anything that's sustainable or organic or good for you, um, it typically comes at a premium. So that's definitely something that we are working to change. So in other words, it's like eating healthy. People say, well, eating healthy is more expensive. And you're like, really? That's a whole exactly. other conversation. At least let me stay with you because I want to talk about these shipping containers because there's a concept here, right? Yes, definitely. And um, I would actually defer that to Majesty because uh, he works a lot of, on the construction on the construction side. So I'll let him talk a little bit about and the Majesty, shipping container yeah, aspect. I have, Majesty, I have <laughs> folks emailing me saying what, they want oh, yeah. shipping containers already. <laughs> what What's the concept here? How does it work? Uh, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. I know people have kind of seen the concept, but we have a twist on ours. Uh, specifically, we use containers, um, and these are certified containers, so they're, they're, they're certified safe by the DCA. Um, but we also couple that with uh, renewable energy systems as well. Um, and we have plans to include other sustainable aspects um, as well in the near future. But right now, uh, we're using the containers. They're similar to Legos. They can be customized in any way. Mm -hmm. uh, we see apartment buildings going up with them, hospitals, schools, all, the, all that good stuff. So um, we're focused on the residential aspect because that is where the need is. Um, so that's what we do. So I want to be clear because these aren't necessarily in the mode of what we call part of the micro-housing movement or, or would they be? Um, we do have products that go all the way down to the tiny house spectrum. And it's important to, to, to consider that, that 
concept because with the um, smaller size, the smaller footprints come lower cost. Uh, so we have a product that's all, all, that's under $100,000, um, you know, for housing, which is amazing. Uh, but we also have product as well that uh, is larger. So we do have some that meets in that spectrum, but some that are in the traditional size. Well, Elisa, and this actually came overnight from a listener. They wanted to know what is an ideal household that fits this best model? Are we talking about, you know, single family, sort of a single family home if you're one person? You know, who's the, I guess who's the best household that this model would fit? Well, we, like my, my Majesty said, we have a product for different ranges of um, income levels. And so especially when we talk about affordable housing, we would talk about our nonprofit arm, Push Nation. Mm-hmm. And that and that entity, it renovates housing um, for people that are looking for a little bit more space at a more economical cost. And so for that arm, for your nonprofit arm, that is also where you all are developing this 17-lot sustainable solar power community in Atlanta. Is that correct? Or is that under EVO? Yeah, that will be under EVO. Yeah. Y'all got a lot going on, which is great. We're going to break it down for you. We need to break it down just a little bit. Y'all got a whole lot going on. So let's (laughs) let's back up. So the shipping containers, the shipping containers, that is not part of the nonprofit arm, correct? Or is it? That's correct. That that would be more workforce housing where we're looking to meet that 80% of AMI. Um, And then the nonprofit is for those that are at the 30% and below because they still need housing as well. So we have a dual partnership or dual entity structure working here to make sure that we service everyone and that everyone gets housing. So you're meeting both. Exactly. Now, let me ask you this, because then I just have another question from a listener who wants to know, are the shipping, y'all got these shipping containers on people's brains. Are they mobile? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, they can be. Um, now, the, the caveat there is that if it's not affixed to the ground, then it is not considered real estate. So you don't get the benefits of real estate such as appreciation, depreciation, all that good stuff. When it's not affixed to a foundation, it's considered a trailer, mobile home, or more so a vehicle. Mm -hmm. So it depends on what's important to you. I would say affix it to the ground. And also, well, let me me get this in there, because I'm wondering also, uh, Majesty, does that also depend on the ordinances of what city you live in? Yes. Because some cities, they don't really (laughs) dig that kind of stuff. You're exactly correct. <laughs> Let's talk about then the this the 17 lot sustainable solar power community in Atlanta. Where in the area are you all looking at? Uh, this project will be in the city of South Fulton. We've already secured the site, already working on horizontal development, clearing and all that good stuff. Uh, so it'll be in the city of South Fulton, which is just south of Atlanta. When might this project be completed? The project will be completed as of the end of next year. Uh, we will start on uh, ground up our vertical construction um, October of this year. And for the term solar solar powered community, uh, take that further for listeners who want to know what that means. Um, well, each structure will have the um, option of having a complete solar panel array uh, installed on the structure that can power the the, the home. Mm-hmm. So they'll have their own, you know, I guess you could say grid somewhat um, to work with, but they'll still be tied into the grid to get power uh, just in case there's any issues uh, with weather or, you know, what have you. Is this model being used anywhere else in the nation? Because when we talk about solar, and I remember having conversations about this, and folks say, oh, solar, again, expensive. It's expensive for the homeowner. And you all are saying, no, this is going to be low cost. And given the the, the, the the community that you are building in and the folks you're trying to get into this house, someone says, okay, well, who, where's the bulk of this funding going to come from? Um, well, we have actually launched a an opportunity fund uh, that covers the expenses of the project cost and all of our structures, all, all of our projects can um, be financed via government programs. Uh, so, you know, it's, it, we try to make it as inclusive as possible. And it's very important to build the solar in up front so that could be financed as opposed to paid out of pocket. What about through uh, HUD? What about finance? Yeah, yeah, HUD, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yes, we work with HUD, and that we actually got a, a grant from HUD as well yeah. to uh, do some uh, affordable housing development. So we work 
with them very closely. I have an email from someone says, where do I apply? But but again, we're, we know we're having fun with that. But obviously, it, it lends itself to what we started this conversation about, which is affordable housing. There is a need for that. Um, we just about got about two minutes. Elise, I wanted just for yeah. you to, if you can, why you all do this? Well, we do it because we actually started our careers in real estate um, and acquisitions, and we quickly noticed that a lot of people were being displaced from their communities, and we wanted to provide a solution for, I guess, what you would call gentrification, just to be plain um, with you, and we've been able to do that through acquisitions and targeting certain zip codes like South Fulton. Um, to provide sustainable and affordable options for people in those communities so that they can stay in those communities. And again, if folks want to learn more about applying, I mean, I know, I know there's a process here and a criteria yeah. for the, that solar power community in Atlanta. Where can they get more information? Yes, they can go to evohaven.com. That's E-V-O-H-A-V-E-N.com. And they can contact our broker partner at Keller Williams Diamond B Realty. And I have another listener. This will be the final question. They want to know, can the fireplace be in the shipping container? What are y'all thinking, people? (laughs) Uh, You can do anything with it. Uh, It's it's just like any other structure. Um, But, you know, (laughs) you can customize it. Yes. I love my listeners. They're well informed. They have good questions. Um, But the the shipping container, for, for a moment, what's it made out of? What's the material there? Is it plastic? It's made out of something called Corton Steel. Um, mm-hmm. And it's actually also coated with something that uh, is actually rust resistant. So mm-hmm. a lot of people have misconceptions about the containers, but think about it. All of the most important things that we have in our lives are being shipped in them for a reason. So no more cleaning the gutters is what you're saying with these shipping containers? Oh, no, it, it, unfortunately, you still have to clean oh, the gutters. There will be gutters. Your lawn, still got to <laughs> you know, do the dishes. Too. <laughs> We're working on some solutions for that so we can build that into there as well. What is your end goal, whether it's with the shipping containers or with the affordable housing? In five years, where do you want to see these both concepts grow for you all? Uh, well, I can speak for us, but I think uh, we, we would like to expand nationally and we would like to be in at least five major markets making an impact in, in you know, communities that are neglected. Sounds good to me. Elise and Majesty Gale, founders of Evo Holdings, and they join me today to talk about creating sustainable and affordable homes throughout Metro Atlanta. We'll have links on our page to their information. Thank you both so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for Thank having you. me. Thank you. Appreciate that. And that's it for this additional Closer Look. A reminder, you can always let us know what you think about the program. Just email me, rose at wabe.org. And remember, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at wabe.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E.